This morning we are starting a new message series pertaining to the topic of fasting. And we're going to be looking first at a passage in Ezra chapter 7 and in chapter 8. If you have your Bible with you or on your phone or a device you have and would want to follow along in that way, I encourage you to. It should also be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, almost every week when we have youth group, we do what we call sword drills because Paul in Ephesians describes uh, God's word as the sword of the spirit. And we usually have kids start with their Bible on their head. I say the passage, they repeat it, and then I say go, and then whoever's the first one to stand up and read it usually gets a piece of candy. Ezra is one of those books where it's like when you say Ezra, whatever, whatever passage, it's like Ez- Ezra, what, who, who is Ezra? Where is Ezra? I've never heard of Ezra. So it is kind of one of those uh, books of the Bible that maybe doesn't get the airtime. I think a lot of other books have, but we're going to spend our moment this morning looking at uh, a passage or a section of Ezra's life in Ezra chapter seven. We're going to be looking at Ezra chapter seven, starting in verse 11. So I'm going to try to kind of tie some context here together with the, the chapters we're going to read here. or not full chapters, but sections. So Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes has given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man named in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven adversaries to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Now, I want to invite you to skip over to chapter 8, looking at verse 21. So basically here we have Artaxerxes has commissioned Ezra to go from exile. They're not in Jerusalem at this time. The Israelites are. And he's asking Ezra, like, why don't you take a group of people back to Jerusalem and help get the temple worship um, restarted? So chapter 8, starting in verse 21, is where we pick up right before this group makes this journey back to Jerusalem. And here Ezra is talking, or he's, he's, uh, it's describing what he's doing here. There by the Hava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for who you are, that you are good, that you're loving, that you're merciful, that you're compassionate, that you seek to be near us all the time, even when we aren't aware that you're near us. Father, as we reflect on this passage this morning, we ask that your spirit 
would uh, use it to cut through the parts of our life that need to be cut so that we can hear who you are and what you want to be in our lives and who, who you want us to be and how you've created us to be. Father, it's by the power of your spirit and through your son Jesus that we pray this. Amen. There are many instances where one of my kids will be trying to do something. It could be trying to fold laundry, which they're young, so folding laundry looks like it's just a pile of clothing on the floor. It could be putting Legos together. It could be drawing something or learning how to eat a new food. Whatever the task is, often what happens is that they're trying to do it and they get frustrated while trying to do it. In situations like this, usually myself or my wife, Julia, are usually right there with them. It's not like we're out of the house or we're right there with them. But they often disregard our help when we say, do you want some help with that? And they continue to struggle with the task. In situations like this, my kids could come away believing that they are alone to figure out how to complete the thing that they're trying to do. That could be their perception. And how often could this also be said of our own perception of God or our relationship with God? Where we are trying to do life and we feel like God is absent from that with us. Where we believe God is far away from what consumes our everyday life right now. But God reveals in his word and ultimately through the life of his son Jesus that this is not the reality Sure, it could be our perception or our belief at times, but it's ultimately not what reality is. Look back at the situation with my kids. The reality is that uh, myself or Julia were present with them or are present with them each and every time they get frustrated with something. But my kids can't see that, and they're functioning on a belief that they have to do it by themselves. My kids essentially become too preoccupied with their own self to where they can't see who is right there with them in the moment. It's not that they are alone in that situation. It's that they aren't in a posture to be aware of those who are there to help them. The same is true of our interactions with God. Because we live in a world that shapes and forms us to be focused on ourselves. And because of that, it can be easy to believe that everything we do in life is up to us to make it happen. The belief that we are alone And that it's only us that can do anything. We are the only ones we can rely on. But that's a distortion of reality. The reality is that none of us are alone. The reality is that God is always near us. But because we are in a posture of being Lord of our own life, we can't recognize God's presence with us as being the one true Lord. In order to see God's presence with us, we have to re-posture ourselves. Fasting is one such practice that repostures us in relation to God. Fasting is a practice that allows us to humble ourselves. And in humbling ourselves, we can gain better perspective of God's presence in our life. What we encounter in the passage from Ezra 7 and 8 today is that our awareness of God's presence is always preceded by humility. Humility precedes Presence. Humility precedes presence. Over the next few weeks, the messages will be focusing on the practice of fasting. 
The messages will lead up to Monday, March 28th, which will kick off a 20-day period of fasting that the leadership is inviting the congregation to take part in. The 20-day period of fasting will end on the morning of Easter Sunday, which is April 17th. So it's going to go through April 16th, which is that Saturday before Easter. But why fasting, you may say? Some of you may think back to your Roman Catholic roots and think of fasting in connection to what we are in right now, the season a lot of us call Lent. Others may have experience with fasting in relation to uh, fasting for a specific thing that they're trying to seek God in prayer for. Others may think more pragmatically about fasting in connection with the various diets or lifestyles that advocate fasting for health benefits. And others may have little to no reference uh, point to fasting in that maybe you've heard the term before, but it's never anything you've ever thought about, nor have you ever practiced before. But our aim over the next few Sundays is to help extrapolate what the Bible has to say about the practice of fasting, as the practice of fasting is mentioned over 70 times throughout Scripture. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? At a very base level, we all participate in a practice of fasting, if at the least between meals. We even have the term fast within the terminology of the term breakfast, the time when fasting from food and drink overnight is broken or ended. At a very basic level, the fasting mentioned in the Bible involves abstaining from food and sometimes drink for a sustained, prolonged period of time. Is it always just abstaining from food, you may ask? Well, fasting throughout the Bible is mentioned explicitly, meaning it directly references the term. There there are passages where the term fasting is directly mentioned. One of those examples is from Judges 20, verse 26, where it says, Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. It says they fasted, like it's pretty clear cut that they fasted there. Like they, they abstained from food or drink for a prolonged period of time, something more than they normally would, like between their dinner in evening and their breakfast in the morning. So that's an explicit example. But fasting is also referenced throughout the Bible implicitly in many places, meaning the idea is implied, but the the term itself isn't necessarily in those passages. An example of this can be seen in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So abstaining from something for a period of time. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because you lack self-control. So here we have where Paul is advocating there may be a time to abstain from something that's not food or drink related. In this instance, it's sexual relations between a husband and wife. And again, it's not he doesn't say you should fast from sex. That's not what he's saying. But you get the idea that he's saying abstain from this for a period of time. But ultimately, you get that that's ultimately in relation to their relationship with God. 
But as I said, in most instances of fasting, at least in Scripture, food and our drink are the standard items that people abstain from. But there are situations like this one where it it indicates that there are other things that people abstain from as well. But by far, food and drink are the standard things that are abstained from during a fast. And likely the meaningfulness of abstaining from food or drink is due to its importance to the sustenance of human life. Without food and drink, a human being deteriorates. We would cease to exist without those in our life. But fasting from food and drink also focuses attention on where those items of sustenance come from in the first place. And for followers of Jesus, God is the provider of our sustenance. So biblically, fasting is tied to our awareness of God's presence, of providing for us in our life. But even in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, as much as an individual human life is not dependent on sexual intimacy to be alive, the broader point that Paul makes is that abstaining from sex in that situation had to do with a husband and wife seeking God in prayer. The abstaining or fasting from sex ultimately has to do with the husband and wife's prayerful awareness of God's presence and work in their life at that moment. So to conclude this thought, fasting in the Bible is generally abstaining from food and or drink or something else in order to help a person become better aware of God's presence. Julia and I have been watching a show called The Cleaning Lady. It's a show about an immigrant woman and her son who have come from the Philippines to the United States to get medical treatment for life-threatening ailments that uh, the, the lady's son has. And she ends up getting a job being a cleaning lady because that's what she has access to. And at the beginning of the show, the husband and the, the father are is still back in the Philippines. But you see him FaceTiming and whatnot over the Internet with them from time to time. But partway through the season, the husband makes his way to the United States. And in those episodes, the husband describes how he has to use blank amount of money that they have saved up to bribe officials along his journey to be able to get from the Philippines to the United States. For a moment, I want to invite you to consider what fasting isn't about. One thing that fasting isn't about is manipulating or cajoling or bribing God into doing something for you. Fasting can appear to be a practice of spiritual bribery with God or a form of of spiritual hunger strike, if you will. The thinking being, if I give up fill in the blank, then I'll get God's attention and he'll have to act to save face or to save me from continual suffering. But this view of, of fasting starts with the premise that God is not already for us to start with, but rather that he needs bribed in order to care for us. This view starts from the premise that God is distant and that we need to bribe him to pay attention to us. But this is not the image of God's character that Jesus reveals to us. Jesus reveals that God is for us and seeks to be near us even when we are far from him. John in his gospel notes Jesus saying this very thing in John 12 verses 32 through 33. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is talking about God drawing people to himself even when he's talking about he's going to be put to death in that whole process. That doesn't seem like God needs to be bribed. It seems like he's seeking people without needing anything in return. 
And Paul notes something similar in Romans 5, verse 8, where he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we are distant from God, Christ died for us, seeking to be with us even when we don't want to have anything to do with him. Meaning when people are actively killing Jesus, he is still drawing them close to God's presence. What we can gather here is that God, if, if God is willing to be near us and be for us, even when we are seeking to kill his son Jesus, then fasting isn't going to do much to bribe him when he already wants to do that and he's willing to die in the process. Fasting doesn't move God because his character is already about seeking to be near our lives before we take up fasting. You, like me, have probably noticed that most subscription services, especially digital subscription services, have gravitated toward the language of whatever the company is plus. So things like Disney plus or Discovery plus or Walmart plus, things like that. The idea behind such tiers is to highlight that there is a base level of engagement for a consumer with a service or a coach or or content. But if you want even greater access to such services or those coaches or that content, then you need to give up money to get that access. You need to do something to get that kind of access. Fasting can also appear to be an avenue of an avenue to access God plus. I think this can also be a mis- misconception of what fasting is. Well, if I fast and I get a greater, I get greater access to God. I get God plus. Like I normally have God. I know He's here, but like I get God plus if I engage in this practice. So the thinking is like if I give, if I um, fast from this thing for this amount of time, if I give up something of myself, then I can access more of God's presence. The premise of this thinking isn't that God is absent. The premise assumes some engagement with God's presence, but it also assumes that some of God's presence is withheld from people unless they partake in a certain practice. Unless they give up something, then they can have that kind of access. But again, this is not the image of God's character that Jesus reveals to us. Jesus reveals that our access to God's presence is not restricted from his own doing. It's not something God's trying to do to us, but rather God's presence is restricted to us from our undoing, our own doing by turning away from God, by not paying attention to God. It's us that go away from the presence, not God who doesn't offer his presence. The earliest example of this can be seen with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God did not remove his presence from Adam and Eve, but rather Adam and Eve removed their full presence from God when they hid after eating of the fruit. Adam and Eve had already eaten the fruit when God comes to visit them. Catch that. They had already turned away from God, and yet God's still coming to meet with them. But it's in that moment where they hide themselves, they cover themselves, they blame other people. They're the ones turning away from God's presence, not God turning his presence away from them. What we can gather here is that God wants to give us access to his presence, But we are the ones who evade or hide or shun or ignore his presence that he offers to us all the time. Fasting doesn't provide more access to God because his presence is already available to us before we would ever take up something like the practice of fasting. I'm sure in here there are a variety of people who have spent time putting a puzzle together. And if your your experience is like mine, you inevitably get to a piece where like that should fit there. It doesn't quite seem to fit there. And and maybe all it ends up taking is you just need to turn the piece to actually fit in the right way. 
The orientation of the piece makes a big difference a lot of times. If fasting isn't about bribing God to do something for us, and if it's not about gaining greater access to God's presence, then what good is fasting? One benefit that I offer of fasting that I think we see in this passage from Ezra 7 and 8 is that fasting can help reorient us to God's presence. Fasting can help to reorient us to see how God has been seeking to be with us even when we haven't been paying attention to Him. Fasting can help to reorient us to see the access to God's presence that has always been there for us even when we have hid from or ignored His presence in our life. Ezra 7 and 8 occurs within the context of Israel um, who has been exiled out of Israel and God's people, uh, Israel, if, if you don't know, it's God's people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this point in their history, they've been taken out of Israel, and they've been overtaken by the Babylonian Empire, which then the Babylonian Empire ends up being taken over by the, the Medes and Persians. And at the point of the history where Ezra 7 and 8 occurs, the Medes and Persians are now in power, and even though the Medes and Persian, Mede and Persian rulers aren't Jewish or worshipers of the God Yahweh, they recognize that Israel's God has a track record of coming through for his people. So the Mede and Persian rulers treat the Jewish people well, at least for political expediency, it seems like. Look at chapter 7, verse 23. The Mede and Persian rulers respect the homeland of the Jewish people and their worship and allow them to resettle and reestablish Jewish temple worship in exchange for God's mercy on their empire. The famous Jewish historian Josephus notes in his, his, in his historical accounts that the Mede and Persian ruler Cyrus took notice that the Jewish prophet Isaiah foretold that Cyrus would return God's people back to their homeland one day. So Cyrus, who is not a Jew, who doesn't care anything about Jewish culture or Jewish worship, somehow he found out this Jewish prophet mentioned you and that you were the one who was going to return these people under your control back to their homeland. And having come across this prophecy, Cyrus made sure to do so, seemingly to get on God's good side and to avoid any potential judgment from a foreign God. It's within this context that Ezra, a Jewish scribe, so again, Ezra is a Jewish scribe, meaning he is an expert in the law or like knows the law of Moses or the law of Israel, and he is working for the the, the ruler at this time, so for a foreign ruler. So... I mean, it's like thinking of our current political leaders having, like, say, a Christian scholar or a Muslim scholar or something like that at their ready. Like, hey, what does this religion say about this? And that helps advise them what to know what to do. That's kind of what's going on here. And the, the, the ruler Artaxerxes at this point has mercy or at least cares enough about what uh, the, the Jewish religion says that he is going to do something about it to help them restore uh, worship in Israel. And what we read about earlier in chapter 7 of Ezra is that he commissions Ezra to take a group of people back to Jerusalem to start worship there again and to reestablish the worship to the God Yahweh. Which maybe is kind of mind-blowing for us to think about, like, a ruler who doesn't care about, like, in our case, like Christianity, but it's like, hey, why don't you go start a church over there? We'll even bless you. We'll give you all the resources to go do it. Like, we can't even, like, fathom, like, what that would probably be like in our day and age right now. This past Thursday, if you're uh, 
um, someone who follows hockey, you know that Jack Eichel made his return to play hockey in Buffalo. But this time it was for his new team, the Vegas Golden Knights. Eichel, as many of you know, was traded from Buffalo last year amidst the controversy over the treatment of a neck issue that Eichel had. Eichel wanted a surgery, but Buffalo's leadership didn't want to take a gamble on that surgery. And so Eichel was traded, and Vegas let him have the surgery, and he recently returned to playing full-time. In return for Eichel, the Sabres received two players, or at least, yeah, two players, one established and the other an unproven rookie, and some future draft capital. From the viewpoint of the Sabres' general manager, it was a confident move to trade away the player who had been considered the face of the franchise and leader of the team for the foreseeable future. But he and the Sabres' leadership, I mean, he made a confident move, meaning, like, you don't know how that's going to turn out. Like, you trade your star and don't know if it's going to look that way on the back end of it. Like, that's essentially what he was doing. But he and the Sabres' leadership stuck to their convictions about the situation and traded Eichel anyway. Time will fully tell who seemed to get the better end of that deal. And while the Sabres have been nothing great this year, they did convincingly win the game this past Thursday against Eichel's new team, including two of the scores coming from the two players that the Sabres received in exchange for Eichel. The Sabres' leadership had a plan, and they stuck to it, even when there were negative consequences to the future of the team in trading a star player. But the Sabres' leadership had confidence and proceeded in faith that their plan would pan out well for the team in the end. And it seems like it could, but again, time will tell. In Ezra 7 and 8, Ezra finds himself in a similar situation as the situation with the Sabres' leadership in the Eichel trade. In chapter 7, Persian leader Artaxerxes extends a very gracious offer to Ezra and the Jewish people in their journey to reestablish Jewish temple worship in Jerusalem. You can see chapter 7, verses 16 and 20. Artaxerxes offers silver and gold and any other resources that they need from the royal treasury. He also gives his blessing to receive free will offerings from the Babylonian people. Artaxerxes extends a plethora of financial resources to this project. Later in chapter 8, as Ezra and the Jews are preparing to journey to Jerusalem, Ezra indicates that they have a moment of hesitation in beginning their journey. They hesitate because of the danger that could possibly await them along this journey. See chapter 8, verse 22. And Ezra explicitly says that he wishes he would have asked Artaxerxes for military protection for their convoy to Jerusalem. And Ezra says that he didn't ask because he apparently because he had apparently boldly told Artaxerxes this, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Ezra didn't ask for protection from Artaxerxes because Ezra claimed to have more confidence in God to protect their journey than anyone else. But this is kind of like the Sabre situation. Like Ezra's being very, he's very confidently saying this, but it's like he doesn't know if that, how that's going to turn out. Like he's confident and believes God's going to provide for them, but he's starting to question that. Like, it, was that the best thing to say? I maybe should have not said that and I should have said, hey, can we have some military protection instead? But here's an example of Ezra living out his faith. He didn't just talk the talk, but he is now faced with actually walking the walk as well. So he doesn't ask for military protection. But it's what Ezra and the people do after this that pertains to our thought process today about fasting. 
In following through with his confident claim of God's protection, Ezra gathers the convoy of Jews who are ready to leave, and he calls them to fast and petition God about protection for their journey. See chapter 8, verse 23. And the most amazing thing there is that it says, Ezra notes that God answered their prayer. I mean, it's just like a short line there at the end. All this like, you know, angst, and it's like, and God answered. <laughs> like there's no detail about anything like there, it's just God answered. In chapter 8, verse 21, Ezra notes that their fasting and prayer was for the purpose of humbling themselves before God. So what we see here is that they didn't fast and petition God as some sort of bribe or some sort of just having greater access to God to be able to ask him something. But it was for the purpose of humbling themselves before God. What we can put together here is that Ezra and the people fasted and prayed to reorient themselves to the reality of who God is and who he promised to be for them, looking back to the promises that God made to the Jewish ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and David. The fasting and praying of Ezra and the people wasn't to bribe or gain greater access to God, but fasting and prayer was a tangible way of them reposturing themselves, humbling themselves, if you will, to re-see God for who he is and who he promises to be for them. They were like the puzzle piece. Their orientation to God was, could, you know, just like us could be one way, but fasting helped to reorient themselves to be able to fit in their relationship with God as it's supposed to be, to see God for who he is and to see themselves for who they are. Simply, humility, at least in this situation, is reposturing ourselves. That's what humility is, right? It's going from here to, to here. It's a reposturing. It's, you know, from us maybe thinking we're on par with God or above God to, oh, no, God is here and I'm here. It's a reposturing of who we are. Humility in this situation is reorienting, the Jews reorienting themselves to see who God was. What we can gather from the fasting of Ezra and the Jews here is that humility precedes awareness of God's presence. Was God aware of them and was God present with them this whole time? Yes. That never changed. But fasting and praying helped to help them to re-see that God was present with them so that they could then confidently and live out in faith that God would provide for them as he has promised to. Without posturing themselves humbly before God, they wouldn't have been able to clearly see God's presence with them. Humility precedes presence. Humility precedes presence. As we approach this 20-day fasting period that we're inviting you as the congregation to participate in, I want to invite you to think through a variety of things as we approach that, that day and how you can approach fasting and then praying. One of those are, what are the items in your life that might be idolatrous? Meaning that they have, an, an, they have your attention and distract you from noticing God's presence. Maybe it's you tend to gravitate toward looking to the government as the source of all things or a leader or some kind of technology. Whatever it is that you seek that often you find more meaning, purpose, and fullness of life in aside from God. Like that can be an idol in your life. And how is that distracting you from God's presence in your life right now? Or a second thing could be what are the items in your life that are a source of pride? Meaning that they place focus on you and distract you from focusing attention on God. 
It could be the position, some uh, position of importance that you have, or maybe accomplishments and the prestige that come from those positions. It could just be confidence in your own ideas, but at the exclusion of others. But how does that take a, put attention on you and distract your attention from being placed on God? Lastly, what are the items in your life that are just simply sinful? Meaning, they are items that we turn to instead of God, and in return, they distort our perception of meaningfulness or purpose or dignity or truth or what a healthy life or a full life looks like. These could be things like greed or sexual intimacy out of marriage, reliance on alcohol or comfort foods or drugs, violence or maybe even an untamed tongue. With those ideas as a prompt to think about what to fast from, like those are reasons to fast from from your own life, but again, not to bribe God or to gain more access to God, but to help you see God for who he is and has always been with you. What may God be calling you to abstain from for a period of time? Like those are actions, but then taking something like giving up food can help focus attention on like, yes, I need to give up that action in order to recognize God's presence in my life as he always has been there for me. So what may God be calling you to abstain from for a period of time in order to help you be better aware of his presence in your life? Think about what that might be for you. If you don't think of something specific, I encourage you to just fast from food during that period of time. We have a good track record in scripture of that being the standard thing. That could be one meal a day and then allowing that time of not eating to be a prompt to focus more directly on who you are in relation to who God is. As I mentioned earlier, you're invited to fast for this 20 days from March 28th through April 16th, leading right up to Easter. Will you join us? Ultimately, we're inviting you to join in fasting to help posture yourself in humility before God, to become more aware of his presence in your life right now. Fasting and prayer helps us to humble ourselves before God. Humility precedes our awareness of God's presence. Humility precedes presence. Will you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, thank you that you are always near us, that you are never far from us. Father, we confess that we easily can turn away from you. We get distracted. Father, we believe things that distort our view of who you are and who we are in relation to you. Father, we ask that as you promised to, that you continue to seek to be in our lives and that you would give us eyes and ears and, and the senses to, to see your presence in our life and to turn to you for our meaning, for our purpose, for our fullness of life. Father, I thank you that you are who you are and make us the kind of people you need us to be so that we can be in proper relationship with you and have the fullness of life that you want us to have. It's by the power of your spirit and through your son Jesus that we pray this. Amen.